This episode originally aired on January 13, 2021. If you do an office job, there's a good chance you spent a lot of the last year staring at your colleagues on Zoom, working at a table somewhere in your home, maybe wearing sweatpants. In April 2020, 62% of American workers were doing their jobs remotely. Some companies have even closed their office spaces permanently. Today, we're talking about remote work. How was it invented? Why didn't it catch on earlier? And later, we'll be talking about giving up work altogether. I'm Laura Marsh. I'm the literary editor at The New Republic. And I'm Alex Perrine. I'm a staff writer at the magazine. This is The Politics of Everything. So despite doing this podcast together over the last several months, I don't think we've seen each other for a long time. We have not seen each other face to face for quite a while now. When was the last time you were in the office? I, I mean, March, you know, it was right when New York like officially went to that very first lockdown way back then. So you haven't seen your desk space since then? No, I haven't. No. And I think my actual work provided computer has been sitting on my desk at work this entire time. Well, I had a lot of desk plants. Um, oh no! <laughs> like I had a whole, a whole like thing going, like trailing ivy and everything. Yeah. For the first couple months, I kept thinking maybe I'll be able to go back to work in time to save these. <laughs> yeah, and then recently, a colleague who has gone in like once or twice emailed me to ask me if she can throw them out. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the end of that. Oh, what a sad <laughs> end. <laughs> well, today we're talking with Richard Cook, who has written about remote work in the new issue of The New Republic. Richard, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here. We're coming up for nearly a year of a lot of people taking part in this kind of unprecedented experiment of working from home. And I think we've learned a lot. <laughs> some of us have discovered that it's wonderful and liberating. And then some of us have discovered things that don't work that well about it. So something I wanted to talk to you about is the idea that this is not a new experience, that this this ability to work from home has existed for a really long time. So I wondered if you could just start us off by telling me, where does this idea come from? Yeah, so the kind of thumbnail version that gets repeated is that the concept of telework was invented by a guy called Jack Nillis, who was a NASA engineer. He's actually still alive. I tried to contact him many, many, many times uh, without success. He's now in, in his 90s. And he's a bit more circumspect about this kind of father of telework title. He understands that it was a process that was already taking place, that other people were involved. But like a lot of ideas of this kind, it came from California. It came from people like NASA engineers sitting in traffic thinking that there's got to be a better way to do this. And especially when the oil crisis struck in the 70s, that really prodded them in the direction of trying to figure out how to do it. People put some money into it and there were kind of prototypes of this telework. What did they think the future of work would inevitably be or what do they want it to look like? Yeah, so Arthur C. Clarke is, is sometimes credited with inventing at least the idea of telecommunications satellite. And he put a lot of investment in the idea that 
face-to-face communication was increasingly outmoded, that people would be able to speak to each other through these electronic conduits, if you like, and that that would have huge ramifications for people going to offices, especially, you know, that essentially middle-class people would just be able to be in charge of their own time and communicate with others from home, like we're doing now. Some of the ideas you're talking about, they are first being proposed or developed in the 70s and 80s. So in the aftermath of this oil crisis, but also at a time when lots of people are living in suburbs. So you necessarily are either going to be taking a train into a city or driving to some office in it, maybe outside of town. So I can see why there's a real incentive to cut that part of the day out. But I'm curious how they thought it was going to work because right now we are so reliant on instant messaging, Zoom, and email, and none of those things really existed. I mean, maybe in some very, very early forms in really high-tech companies, but the average worker did not have access to that stuff. So how was this meant to actually function? NASA had remote work solution as early as the 60s, right? Yeah, I mean, there were certainly early facsimile links between uh, different NASA contractors, for example. And in the UK, I mean, we don't think now about the UK as being a place which does massive amounts of technological innovation. But they, through the post office, you know, set up this proprietary system, which was kind of like a TV studio for your office. There's no business like show business, and the latest stars are company directors. Now you can conduct your business conference by television, and there's a scrambler for top-secret deals. Contravision is a new dimension in business communication introduced by the post office. From its engineering it was very expensive, London, it was fairly cumbersome, but their concept would be that it would be cheaper than business travel. And it turned out that People like business travel and they didn't like contravision, <laughs> uh, which is what that was called. Contravision is such a perfect 70s, like retro futuristic name. <laughs> I mean, one thing which was really surprising to me, I, I sort of had an inkling of this before, but not how much. All this stuff we think of as brand new technology, like I mean, maybe we don't think of faxes as brand new anymore, but they certainly seem part of the information age. But faxes and video phones are much, much older than we think they are. It's just that they were so expensive and so cumbersome that people didn't sort of see their social purpose for a long, long time. Well, it's interesting in the in the ads I saw for Confravision or these early informational videos, they compare Confravision to Concord, which was also something that the UK and France had developed at that time. Like both of these were meant to be services that would make the world smaller, super futuristic, and would like promote British and French transatlantic businesses. Concord no longer exists. Like they decided that was too expensive to keep running in my yeah. lifetime. But it feels like Confravision has lived on in some ways. How different is it from Zoom? Like, it's the same idea. It's very much the same idea. And and I guess we, in our lifetimes, have seen this as well. I mean, when you sort of watch an old science fiction show where people have video phones, they're on them all the time. (laughs) You know, even even (laughs) when they're on an alien planet, you make a video call. (laughs) And what happens now is that everyone has 
a video phone in their pocket just about. And most of us rarely use them outside. You know, people send texts instead. They call a video call would be your last option because the, the video element is a nuisance, you know. Yeah, because you would have to hold the video in front of your face like while you're trying to do something. But it's, it's actually, they get to what you were saying about ContraVision. They were like, well, this is it's going to be expensive, but it's going to be cheaper than business travel. And, you know, it turned out people like business travel because you get to go somewhere. Like, you like you want to see someone face-to-face to develop a rapport with them, to go get a drink with them. Like, even the limitations of remote work were apparent as it was being invented, it seems like. A hundred percent. And... When people were, you know, the sort of Jack Nillis version, especially during the energy crisis, they were literally just making equations of, you know, energy expended, going to work, energy saved, not <laughs> going to work, cost of energy, and, and just doing it like a sum. But even then, they were sort of saying, it may be that people need to be together in ways that we don't realise. There, there might be social resistance to this. And the history of remote work is is really the history of that social resistance. You know, you would expect it to be led by technological innovation. And in fact, it's not like that at all. You know, technology often makes very little difference to how quickly it's, it's taken up. A statistic I found absolutely astonishing in your piece is that in 1980, 2.3% of workers had moved into some form of telecommuting arrangement. And by 2018, huge number of technological innovations later, the number is only 5.3%. It's such a tiny, tiny increase in proportion to the increase in the technology that should allow this. Yeah. I mean, that time of the 1980s as a time where other innovations are being made, hedge funds start to come into their own management consultancy. You know, people are happy to drive a plough through their payroll and and sort of get the credit of, of being a, a slaughterer of their own employees. This idea that you would look after your employees kind of goes by the wayside. And that's got to be a feature here, right? That even if the technology exists, no one wants to say, oh, I'm going to be working at home from a few weeks because you'll get fired, mm-hmm. you know, and people did get fired. Right, right. So the idea is in the era of mass layoffs, the person who is most present, who is in front of the manager most often is maybe the least likely to get laid off, or at least that's the superstition. That's what you hope if you're trying to be that person who keeps their job. Yeah. I mean, it, it's incompatible with presenteeism culture. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. I love wild, that. Wildly incompatible. <laughs> what a great word. <laughs> because, yeah. Do you describe there were companies like IBM where there was sort of a culture of remote work? And then you also talk about how Yahoo at one point was like, we're going to do remote work and then completely did a turnaround. Uh, but part of it was people just assumed if you weren't in the office, you were being lazy, right? You just weren't actually working as hard as everyone else. Absolutely. And even if you were working as hard as other people, how would they know? <laughs> and I mean, yes, exactly. let's face it, most people at work are not working hard. They're just appearing to work hard. And if you're yeah. remote working, you can't appear to work hard. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I want to talk for a minute about some of the benefits of remote working for those people who did do it early on. 
my dad worked from home my whole childhood. We had like a spare room that had these huge computers in them. And when the phone rang, I would have to answer it like, you know, seven-year-old with the name of his company and asking if I could like, you know, direct the call. Like I would have to pretend to be a receptionist. (laughs) I would, you know, where some kids would get paid to do chores like mowing the lawn, I would get paid like my pocket money if I did some filing. Like if I went through the filing cabinets, I should put that on my resume. I never thought that oh, when I grow up, I will also work out of the spare room. That didn't cross my mind. But I do remember it being so incredibly important to my dad that he, like, had this freedom. And, you know, and he would, like, wake up at, like, six in the morning and go in there and he has a very technical job. He's an engineer. So he'd just be designing things all day and then you know, at six, he would leave the spare room and, <laughs> and come out to everyone. And it, like, I was aware that it was an unusual way to work, but it did seem like it had real benefits. That is the most heartwarming story of child labor I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> there are all kinds of categories of workers and people for whom remote work has been fantastic. The most obvious being disabled people who for decades were told that their workplaces couldn't be accommodating to their needs. And it turns out all it needed was a global pandemic and everyone can work with the conditions <laughs> that they were requesting for such a long time. I guess the, the point of my piece is that those benefits have been unevenly distributed and just as often employers have worked out ways to make people work harder from home, you know, that that mm-hmm. sort of demarcation that your dad had in at six, out at six, is much more difficult when you then start getting emails from seven, for example. Right. That's a setup that works really, really well for particular jobs. And those particular jobs require particular credentials and skills. If you're your own boss, obviously working from home, you can set the rules. But uh, when you add bosses and then the sort of managerial aspect of it, it, it changes the dynamic completely. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm thinking also it must have been the golden age of working from home in the 1990s because you could mm. communicate just enough to get the work done. <laughs> but think how hard it would be to micromanage someone who's working from home. Like every time a fax came through, that was like five minutes. Minutes of phone <laughs> and then it would like slowly print the message. <laughs> so like, that's what I was trying to say was like, it was this like wonderful era of, you know, it was imp- t- technically impossible for a boss to breathe down your neck. Hmm. If you had that kind of job where the output was clear, like you're going to turn in the assignment, then that was all that mattered. Whereas now I think those benefits have disappeared because the technology exists for not only for managers to contact you constantly, but with something like Microsoft Teams and other productivity software for keystrokes to be logged, for screen sharing where someone could see what websites you're accessing. So that kind of autonomy that I think seemed like such a huge benefit of working from home in many cases would no longer exist. Or if a company didn't want it to exist, they could very easily remove it. And with uh, this spyware, you know, effectively the surveillance software, which sends reports of 
how long your calls were and who you spoke to and how, you know, some of it can do things like tell when your mouse is moving. I mean, that mm. is an incredibly insidious level of, of scrutiny. You know, your boss is not just breathing down your neck, they're living under your shirt. You know, that, that's <laughs> intolerable for a lot of people, I think. We've talked about how remote work did not follow the technology advances, but I wonder if in some sense it followed these surveillance technology advances. Yeah, I mean, that it's kind of hard to tell because we have hit this, <laughs> An un- hit this yeah. coincidence where the, <laughs> the surveillance technology uh, gets good and widespread at the same time uh, as we're having this, this COVID lockdown worldwide. But that is demand-driven. You know, as soon as people were working from home, the companies that make this managerial software were just fielding inquiry after inquiry about how people could monitor their employees. So, yeah, it it certainly seems to be the, the main thrust that management is interested in. It seems like a really hard time to be assessing how effective work from home is or what the benefits are. Because I can think of a lot of people who would love to work from home and think it would make them way more productive and happier, but maybe they are also having to supervise two children who are in school right now. You know, there's so many other things, services they can't access that ordinarily would allow work from home to feel wonderful. You know, going back to my dad, when when he was working from home, we also have my mom at home who didn't work and who Mm. was taking care of the children, you know. That's why I was able to answer the phone and pretend to be a receptionist rather than like storm in on him and constantly interrupt when he was trying to get stuff done. (laughs) So it feels like a hard time to say, does this work? Yeah. And also because a whole lot of stuff is is normalized, there's this almost we're all in it together feeling where if the boss is working from home, you can too. And you are hearing all kinds of different experiences. Some people love it. Some people hate it. Anecdotally, the category of people that I've heard have struggled with it the most, I've heard this from a few different people, are kind of white male bosses, middle-aged <laughs> bosses who like doing kind of dominance performances every day. And <laughs> those people are often not the boss at home, as it were. And I- I've heard stories of those people, you know, almost literally begging to go back into the office just because they hate work from home so much. They just want to be physically somewhere where they're in charge of everyone, right? <laughs> exactly right. Rather than just sort of looking into the abyss of a Zoom call. <laughs> so I'm actually curious, uh, did you work from home prior to COVID-19? What was your work set up before all this? So I've been a freelance writer for quite a long time. I've had periods where I would work in an office on TV productions and things like that. And I remember distinctly this feeling of sort of going out at 11am early on in my freelancing career and there just kind of being nobody around. And Mm -hmm. it's a sensation which is almost like guilt. You're (laughs) out of step with the rest of how things work. You're out of that diurnal commute you know Mm -hmm. the only other people around are sort of old people or unemployed people and (laughs) sort of you almost feel like other office workers start to think that what you do is not real and that that sort of illegitimacy has 
well, that's one of the things that I loved about it. You know, I didn't want to have the feeling of, of having a real job. But <laughs> then the times where I did go to an office, I would sometimes realise almost retrospectively that I'd been lonely for a period and you, you had almost this, this elation of, of talking to colleagues. So, yeah, yeah I mean, I, I think people who do work from home are familiar with those feelings. My experience has been just that maybe we should just try to be more flexible in general and not make it an all or nothing. That's right. And I mean, it, the the history of remote work is, is littered with incorrect predictions. So we might as well <laughs> add some more. But Let's add some more, yeah. Yeah, that, that <laughs> seems to be what's going to happen. I, I don't think everybody is going to jump into remote work full time when they have the options. It's just that things like working from home when you need to or, or want to are going to become more socially acceptable. And that should be beneficial depending on how much surveillance is involved. That's the optimistic future. And I think you've described very well how these things that are um, pitched as things that will help liberate the employee, like a policy of saying you can work from home when you want to or when you need to. And these things can then just like be turned right around by bosses and, and turned into another way to heavily monitor what the, what the employee does, right? There was an incredible statistic I read that before the recession, the great the financial crisis, it was incredibly rare for someone to check email before they went into the office. And after that at something like 50% of people who answered the survey said they checked email before they got out of bed. <laughs> if that isn't working from home, what is? <laughs> yeah, it's almost always unpaid working from home. You know, mm-hmm. yeah. people aren't submitting a timesheet at the end of that week saying, I spent all this time checking emails in bed on my smartphone, you know, but that is work. Yeah. Right, and you wonder if this surveillance software that tracks you between nine and five, well, maybe if it counted some of the stuff that you do on the train and in bed in the morning, then it might not look so good for the employer. Like you might be owed overtime. One of the weirdest things about some of this surveillance and team management software, this is true of, of Microsoft Teams, is that some of it has started to introduce what is effectively a commute into remote working. (laughs) People are still performing like commuting behaviours of having time, you know, a a few minutes before their work starts. I have seen people and have read stories about people who do stuff like put on a suit, get in their car, drive around (laughs) the block, come home and then go into their (laughs) home office. Oh, man. The... You know, early clerks' offices had fireplaces and, like, easy chairs to resemble a home, right? Uh, Big tech company offices who have essentially recreated some version of that where, like, it's fun to go to the office. And so when I think about the future of work from home, I remember that Facebook, to use one example, has not just held on to their Manhattan real estate, but they have rented more Manhattan real estate. And so do you think that that is a harbinger of, like, this is not the beginning of the work from home era. Yeah. I mean, with tech companies, this was part of the reason why Yahoo got spooked into spiking a lot of their remote work. They were looking at companies like Google, um, where there's an electronic drum kit and a pool table. And, um, you know, uh, Anna Weiner's book, Silicon Valley, is, is full of these incredible details of where she'll go into the office and there's just like 
a guy with no shoes on strumming an acoustic guitar <laughs> and there's, you know, always seems to be someone mixing cocktails or it's almost like at, in her life people are going home to get work done and going to the office to, to hang out. And part of the thinking <laughs> behind that comes from this sort of frat bro mentality that if you set up a sort of dorm room session with the right people, their ideas will spring off each other. And at Google, that was taken seriously enough that my understanding is they did things like made sure that there was a little queue for food, that people didn't get their food from the canteen too quickly Mm. because that way you would have this incidental contact where they'd start sharing ideas and, you know, Watson would meet Crick, like the the story of technology is full of these kind of meet cutes of people just happening to run into each other working on a similar thing. And those sort of corridor conversations were what they were trying to generate. Again, if we're talking about how this is going to look in a few years, I think the unequally distributed future is like really it. Because people who work for companies like Google, I think, are going to have the freedom to choose how they decide to work. And for other people, I think it's going to be a lot more limited going forward. You can already see that split if you think about the difference between working at an Amazon campus-style office and working in an Amazon warehouse, Mm -hmm. the amount of initiative and leisure afforded to one versus the sort of mechanization of the other, those are very, very extreme differences now. Well, thank you so much for talking to us today, Richard. Oh, it's a pleasure, Alex. Thanks. Richard Cook's article is called The Perpetual Disappointment of Working from Home, and you can find it on newrepublic.com. After a short break, we'll be back to talk to Katie McDonough about the seductive fantasy of early retirement. The U.S. has a contradictory relationship with work. Our civic religion valorizes working hard, and our popular culture romanticizes slackers. Today, the American economy seems to demand perpetual hustle. Many young people have no real expectation of ever enjoying a comfortable retirement. But what if leaving work behind weren't such an impossible dream? What if you could retire decades before you qualify for Social Security? More leisure time and a decent retirement have been central demands of the labor movement basically since it came into existence. In recent years, though, a loosely affiliated group has turned the collective demand of freedom from work into something more like a collection of life hacks. We're joined now by Katie McDonough, a deputy editor at The New Republic, who recently wrote about fantasies of retiring early. Hi, Katie. Thanks for coming on the show. Hi. Thanks for having me. So uh, you wrote about this whole sort of cottage industry that's grown up around giving people financial advice about how to retire early. It has an acronym to describe it, FIRE, which stands for Financial Independence Retire Early. So before we get into your own dreams of retirement, give us an idea of what FIRE is about. What does the successful FIRE retiree's lifestyle look like? So one thing that I heard in response to my piece and that I will tell you is that there are so many varieties of fire and it is really <laughs> reductive to oh, yeah. assume that they <laughs> to are put them all in one bucket. only one thing. <laughs> uh, so some people do genuinely really emphasize the FI part, the financial independence part ends up being the main goal. The retire early ends up becoming kind of secondary. 
And so you see different people that based on like where their interests are do different things. Some people are retiring early because they made like hundreds of millions of dollars at scammy startups and they <laughs> spend their days microdosing in and around San Francisco and it seems really fun. Um, <laughs> other people move to parts of the country with comparatively low costs of living and they seem to like blog a lot. It seems like fire becomes almost their second job because so much <laughs> of this is this self-help advice and almost podcast blog industry in addition to the financial advice itself. And so it varies depending on what you want from it, but it's a, a set of advice that is supposed to be able to, everyone can access it equally. It's just like a code that everybody, like once you have the tools and ingredients, it's just completely democratic and everybody can do it. Uh, how does everyone do it? What's the, like, the basics of the, of the how you get to do it? In terms of what most of the advice is, there's really practical stuff that makes sense. It's like, don't eat takeout and, you know, maybe ride your bike instead of paying for gas and other things like that. And if it works for you and you can make it like, that's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But then, yeah, there's this really specialized investment part that is the actual thing that unlocks the wealth um, <laughs> that is wildly inaccessible. Maybe I'm just projecting my own deficiencies onto much of the rest of the country, but it feels like something that's very difficult to master and is actually really time consuming and actually needs a lot of expert insight, you know, financial con consultancies and other things like that. Not the kind of thing that you can figure out on your own. It seems like this advice seems to just assume you have a paycheck large enough to sock away a portion of it that is significant and that you're not then spending that entire portion on servicing your own debt, right? Yeah. Like, <laughs> Right, because there are a lot of people who are not buying lattes. Yeah. And they're also not getting to save that money right. anywhere. <laughs> yeah, I think what gets regarded as like, oh, look at this, like, amazing frugality. Like, look at us really making responsible choices is really just what it is to live with really, really low income, right? You actually don't get to do a lot of things like eat out and have nice dinners or buy big houses or take cabs everywhere. The kind of comic version of it that gets repeated a lot is like, oh, millennials and their avocado toasts or their lattes right. or something. Um, but yeah, this level of discretionary spending, a lot of people aren't buying those kinds of things and they stay broke because they started broke. So every three or four months, you know, some Wall Street Journal or Business Insider piece will go around Twitter that's like, this 26-year-old just bought his first house. Here's how. Paragraph one is like, stopped going out to the movies. Paragraph 15 is like, like parents gave him a loan. <laughs> you talk in the article about fat and lean versions of this. Um, so what, what kinds of income are you looking at if you're on the fat version versus the lean version? I think it varies so much depending on where in the country you live. But the lean version is that you look at what the average person spends in the United States annually, and you're supposed to go way under that. Like there are some fire people who are like, I have two children and I spend $16,000 a year um, by making really, really lean budgets for themselves. And then there's fat fire, which I think is more <laughs> of the type of the person who like made many, many, many mm -hmm. millions of dollars and can just live well because they actually don't have to think too much about their spending because they just have what seem like endless reserves of money. I brought up the labor movement in the intro because it feels to me like this is notably lacking any sort of structural critique of how the economy works. And I guess it takes for a given that you want to escape wage slavery, 
but it's presented as sort of a personal option that certain people have sort of hacked their way into or, or have figured out. And there's not really any broader sense of, of what is it about wage labor that I didn't like and how can we help everyone sort of escape it without giving them these particular little self-help tips. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And so in the piece too, I, I do try to connect it to writing on the left that engages with some of these same ideas around exploitation and the grind and toil. And it does suck. Like I I think one of my firmest core beliefs is that work sucks and I, I want people <laughs> to be able to escape it. But, you know, the political framework lacking in this movement that, as you say, it doesn't engage with the economy. It doesn't engage with questions of power and how these things reproduce themselves systemically. And so you're never actually going to get an answer to getting everybody out of these problems of toil and exploitation. You're just going to really be able to kind of maybe luckily, if you're savvy enough, just skirt your way out of it. But everybody else kind of has to figure it out for themselves. Fire movement seems to me to fit in with a couple other trends. One is like the tiny house mm. trend. Yeah. One is like <laughs> van life. Like these ideas that you can just escape from the usual system that everyone's in and kind of go off and define yourself. Do you think that those forms of behavior are a response to something bigger? And like, what do they tell us? about the economy. I wonder if there's a sort of unconscious nostalgia here. And that's what made me think about the tiny house thing. Because, like, there actually was a time in living memory in the United States where you actually sort of didn't need a large income to get by, as it were. Like, it was actually possible for much of the 20th century to have a modest income and live modestly, but have no debts. You didn't have to sort of strive to be rising up some ladder, but just like the basic necessities of housing, health care, and food, the things you need to stay alive, were like sort of attainable at this very low level. So I do wonder if like part of this is like trying to recreate that, but like now it requires like accumulating a base of capital first before you can then recreate that lifestyle. I think that's really right. And I also, that's where the part where like, if you apply these same critiques to and then incorporate a structural <laughs> analysis, then it becomes a it becomes the liberatory project that exists elsewhere and is not this in the least, you know? You should start a, a like, fire newsletter or a podcast that, that slowly begins introducing... I'm going to deprogram like, them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. you got to get them... <laughs> got to get them to, to think structurally. What would the substantive version of fire look like? The one that actually involved the, the critique you're talking about. Like, what would that version of it look like? I mean, the sort of gentlest entry point is just basic social democracy, right? Like kind of reinvesting in, in public pension and retirement, increased wages, reduced work hours across the board, a, a robust labor movement that can achieve these things. They have these critiques of, you know, we we work too hard, here we are in kind of the, the rat race, um, but there's no sense of the ways in which leisure and autonomy are systematically denied people, right? To So like very structurally that being a black woman worker who's doing home health care versus being a tech worker living in San Francisco, the, the means through which you can do cost cutting and savings and investment from those two positions are quite different. Um, so not only even the means that you have to build wealth, but the kind of daily experience of your labor being fundamentally different, um, is, it doesn't really come into the, to the literature. 
none of the fire blogs have that chart that shows productivity and wages diverging in the 70s and just getting further and further apart. <laughs> See, maybe you can join me in my yeah. fire podcast. <laughs> and then we can retire early together. <laughs> well, um, one question on that, though, is, I mean, I've seen that graph and we all know that real wages have been going down since the 1970s. Household incomes have been going down, even though usually a two-person household now has double the income because maybe the woman is working too. We know all of that, but it's a very long road from knowing that to actually having any kind of change based on that knowledge. And FIRE is like you read this one book and maybe you could start to do it for yourself. Isn't that the appeal that you? It's, it's something you can actually enact? You don't have to wait for Congress no, totally. I think people come into this or enter into the to the literature from so many different places that I think that there it's very reasonable to expect and you see this reflected in some of the people writing about their their journeys to financial independence that it very much was born of a place of I am never going to get this any other way. The only thing that I can do is this. Um mm-hmm. so here I am kind of trying to to take my piece of it. And so, you know, it's not as if I think that a person can't practice different financial habits while also having, you know, these larger structural critiques or participating in collective movements that would help maybe kind of accelerate the process through which more of us can get more of that. Um, But I think that as a genre, it doesn't really account for any of that. And a lot of these blogs in almost entire absence of politics, it's as if there is no president in fire world. There is no Congress, (laughs) you know? So I think that's a really interesting absence. It's funny, you know, thinking about it another way, like FIRE, Financial Independence Retire Early, like as a sort of blog and podcast trend, it's it's like very individualistic. But if you just imagine that same phrase as like a, a demand from a political movement, it's revolutionary. Yes. Like, like independence from the market is like a, an actually like sort of revolutionary demand. But then isn't that's a different acronym, right? That's UBI. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we have a lot of different versions of what this has looked like historically. So it's like, you know, eight hours for work, eight hours for rest, eight hours for what you will is one version of an articulation of like your entire day should not be consumed with labor. So yeah, like I think that's why part of what I'm so drawn to or just fascinated by is the things being articulated through this writing it does feel almost like a funhouse mirror version of left idea or left critique of the way that we live and how we are expected to live. But then the answer is, well, then just figure your way out of it and you'll be fine. <laughs> Katie, thank you so much for talking to us today. Thank you so much for having me. And also, this is my notice of resignation from the New Republic. <laughs> I was waiting. <laughs> I have accumulated millions in, in savings and, and I'm retiring. <laughs> Well, congratulations. And Katie's article, The Long Plot to Escape from Work, is part of Work Sucks Month at the New Republic, a series exploring how and why we work and why we don't want to. You can read Katie's piece and others in the series at newrepublic.com. The Politics of Everything is co-produced by TalkHouse. Emily Cook is our executive producer. Kevin O'Connell is our audio engineer. If you enjoy The Politics of Everything and want to help support the show, one thing you can do is share your favorite episode with a friend. Thanks for listening. 